Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, actor Chris Bisson. There's a lot of people that have been very successful from Manchester, obviously, film, TV. We do everything in this city. You know, there is nothing that you need that you can't get within these city walls. Chris is born in Woodenshaw and is Mancunian through and through. He's a well-known TV actor who's played Jay Sharma in Emmerdale for over 10 years. And he was also a familiar face on the most famous cobbles in the UK on Coronation Street, playing Vic for three years from 1999. He starred in another iconic Mancunian series, Shameless, and you may remember his part in the BAFTA-winning East is East. Chris, thanks very much for joining me today and We Built This City. It's great to be here. As you know, your stepdad, Eamon O'Neill, the High Sheriff of Manchester, joined me on We Built This City recently. And he talked about always being prepared to take the opportunity that's presented to you. And I read that one of your mantras is you make your own look. So a very similar view on life. Why do you think that's so important? I think in our industry, people often say, oh, you've got to be in the right place at the right time and you were lucky to get this and you, you know, but really being in the right place at the right time is one thing, but having been prepared and made the best of the opportunity is probably more important than it's not a case of bumping into somebody and suddenly you get a job on TV. Um, you know, when you meet people and you're talking to people, you're reading briefs properly and you're making sure that you're, you're on top of things and you're on top of your game. And um, I, I think that's, that's really important that you go into situations prepared for them. Have you always done that? Most of the time. I try to. <laughs> I'm not sure how prepared I am for this podcast, to be honest with you. So I might be failing to meet my own mantra there. But um, there are situations where you just have to prepare yourself as best you possibly can. Mm. And sometimes mm. that might mean just trying to keep yourself calm because you don't know what's <laughs> on the other side of the door. Um, and that is very often the case in our industry. Um, you go to a meeting, you go to a casting or... and suddenly they they throw something on you can you just do it like this or can you just do it like that um okay it's this uh, this happened to me once which i wasn't able to do this one actually but um i got a script and the script was in english and then i went into the casting and he said so could you just do that in urdu <laughs> i was like uh <laughs> sorry no i don't speak urdu um you've arranged to meet chris from manchester and <laughs> Fluent yeah. Mancunian, and I can do a range of accents for you, but I can't speak Urdu. <laughs> oh, that's what you can't prepare for. So were you like that as a kid? Do you think you always had that bit of hustle, that ability to kind of deal with, you know, what's thrown at you from being a young age? I always remember being quite shy, really, and very quiet um, and a little bit introverted. And I guess I still am like that today. Um Although that's not what people think because they see you on the TV or they listen to your podcast or whatever it is that they they perceive you as. My mum always made me do my homework. There was no slacking in our house. You know, <laughs> she was diligent and everything had to be done. And, um, you know, I was just like any other kid. I'd, I'd try and get away with the, the minimum amount of work possible if I could. But then when I got 
stuck into something that I really enjoyed, I would go the extra mile. And it would always be about doing the best that you possibly can do. And then you're always looking for a way to improve on what you've already done. And, you know, that's true of of life in general as well. Um, In my career, you never stop learning. There's always something new every single day, every single scene, every single moment when you're out in the streets when you're in the city centre or sat in a restaurant, observing how people speak, how people behave, what makes them the way that they are. And all of these small details of life are what I built my career upon because they're the things that I extract from the city, from the culture, from the people to be able to portray things on screen with some degree of authenticity, accuracy. And, you know, that's important. And it's a real sense of curiosity, isn't it? That, you know, if that never dims, then there's always something else to learn. I always believe if you've given up on learning, you've given up on life. Because at no point in your life should you be left without something to learn. Um, I mean, I love gardening, you know, and (laughs) I don't get to do that much to it. But I'm forever thinking, oh, what can I do there? How will that work? How will that grow? How can I make this better? And, you know, just that little bit of research, that little bit of learning. And then suddenly you get that kind of, you get that reaction from the plant or the tree and it comes into flower. And suddenly you've learned something new and you've achieved something new because you just invested that little bit more time. Yeah, that is so true. And I've done loads and loads of gardening for the first time in about 15 years in lockdown and half the stuff's done really well half the stuff's dead (laughs) so I need to do some more I need to do some more learning quite frankly so how did you get into um, acting because you were at 14 you were straight on to children's ward weren't you so how how did that come about I never wanted to be an actor and I was at a very young age that I didn't really have any direction or ambition or I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up and I'd done some photos. Some people had asked me to do a couple of like modeling photos. And then my auntie owned a hairdresser's in the old Moss Side precinct. And she was doing a fashion show at, um, at the Manchester Academy. And my dad volunteered me because they didn't have enough kids for the kids section. So they put me on the stage and we were rehearsing at Westwood Street, the old... Um, well, it's still there, actually. The The West Indian Centre in Moss Side was where we had the stage set out and we were rehearsing. And I've got feet that point inwards. So they were making me foot walk like a normal person with my feet pointing out like you're supposed to be on the runway, trying to get me to do dance moves, which I really wasn't very good at. But basically, I just had to walk down the catwalk and kind of show off a bit, which was really out of my comfort zone. The show day came and I did it and it was fine. It was from there that I got asked to do some a few bits of photographs for some magazines and stuff. And then it got to a point where my stepdad had suggested to me that maybe I needed an agent because I quite liked doing some of the photographic stuff. The on-stage catwalky stuff I wasn't so keen on, but I ended up signing up with an agency in Manchester and I did a few photo stories for girls' magazines. But basically, they, they take a photo and you have to look like you're annoyed or look like you're happy or look like you're in love and they put these little bubbles on them and they they write the words into them (laughs) Um, and so I did a few of those and I I didn't really know what I was doing and from there I got a casting call for Coronation Street at a very young age 
And I remember going and the, the office was just off Key Street and I didn't know at the time what it was for. I hadn't been told what it was for. But I walked in and there's all these kids, white kids with blonde hair, sat down both sides of the room where we were sat. I didn't think anything of it particularly. I went into the casting and the wonderful casting director who was at ITV, Granada for many years, Judy Hayfield, and I thought the casting went really well. I mean, she let me do the script, but she did say, I'm not sure that you're quite right for this, Chris. And I hadn't put two and two together in that these two characters were defined as white, blonde children. <laughs> but on the back of that meeting, even though I you know, I tried my best in the in the meeting, and what that meant was that she then called me back because there was another show that ITV were making, a children's programme called Children's Ward, and it was set in the ward of a children's hospital. And it was filmed at the ITV studios on on Key Street. So I got recalled for that audition. And then they were big, open auditions. And that was quite daunting because you had kids coming from all the theatre schools. I didn't go to a theatre school. I was learning on the hoof, effectively. I was winging it. And then I got down to the last few. And then you were suddenly on the spotlight, weren't you? Then you're going to be recognised by kids on the street. You, you know, that was the programme of the time. How was that overnight? It was quite strange because no adults would watch that programme. So when I was with adults, my life was completely normal. But whenever there was children around, they just started pointing at me. I try and think back to how that felt at that time. And I, I mean, I was only 13, so it was a very, very long time ago now. But I remember it being quite exciting in some ways. Um, and because I was shy, it also meant that people came up and started conversations with me because I was never really good at that. You know, I was the one that could never ask a girl out on a date. I was I was just too shy. But people started to come up to me and talk to me. And, and generally, that was good. I suppose in some ways it made the shy kid a little bit popular. <laughs> Which was which was unusual, and in some ways, it worked for me. In terms of my career, really, that set me up, because when you start doing something as a kid, the adults that you're working with are a lot more likely to help you, and you can ask stupid questions and not feel stupid. If you're loving, we built the city. Please, could you take the time to leave a five star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. Manchester's got such an amazing community of theatre, hasn't it? And my daughter did performing arts and loved it. And she's now in London. She's a, a songwriter, performer. But there seems to be such a community. You've grown up with a real kind of cohort, haven't you, of people who've gone to be, on, to be very successful? Yeah, there's a lot of people that have been very successful from Manchester, obviously, film, TV, music, artists, you name it. You know, we have everyone. We do everything in this city. You know, there is there is nothing that you need that you can't get within these city walls. Uh, when I was young and I was just out of school and into sixth form, my friends were, a lot of my friends were rappers. And so I used to go around on the music scene with them and they used to have these open mic nights and they'd go up and they'd perform and there was loads of Manchester musical talent. And I suppose I used to hang around with them more than the act a lot, to be honest with you, because I wasn't really in with the act a lot. I used to meet them at work. I used to meet them at Manchester Youth Theatre, but then I'd just go back to real life, normal life. 
which was with my school and college friends. And I never really kind of, I never really lost that. Uh, that's how I identified. That's what I was interested in. And, you know, we were youngsters and we were exploring the city for the first time. You, did, you know, what's now the Northern Quarter, which was kind of round Affleck's Palace when I was growing up. And, you know, Dry Bar was, was round there. And, you know, that was kind of a new and up and coming area. There was, what was it called? Isabar used to be underneath Affleck's yeah. Palace that we used to go to. Um, and then the Gay Village was a big thing. So there was all these parts and like everyone goes to, a lot of people go to Deansgate Locks these days, but that was kind of after but yeah, certainly the Hacienda and the Boardwalk and those sorts of clubs were, were the ones that I used to be hanging around. I was at university in Birmingham, but I used to come back to go to the Hacienda on the coach. It couldn't stay away. So you've obviously played two really key roles in two of the biggest soaps on TV and a household name. And you also played Cashy in the iconic Shameless, which we'll talk about in a minute. So they all tell stories of very northern communities. Do you think having been a northern and loving the North and Manchester and Salford so much has really helped you to be in character in those dramas? Yeah, being a Northerner obviously puts you in a better position for playing a Northern part. You can put accents on and you can do whichever parts, but I think that the shows are looking for kind of real authenticity. And, you know, if, if they've got the right bank unions to do it, they don't need anyone else. Well, I found this out very quickly in my professional career because when I'd finished uni, well, I hadn't actually finished uni. I was supposed to carry on after my H and D and then go and finish off and get the BA. But I didn't because I got a job on Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren. And I was a bit of a gangster and I got shot through the head and that was the story. And then I got a casting for East is East on stage. That was a major turning point, really. More than any of the others, picking up that play and reading that play and thinking, wow, this is great. And so I went down to London and um, went to the Royal Court in Sloan Square for this audition. Big, proper London theatre, you know, it, it was exciting. And it's like the, the Palace Theatre or the Opera House in Manchester, I suppose. And I did the casting and I got the part. And it was at that point I had to make the decision between career and education. This time I chose career because... I just decided that I was going to go back and finish off my degree in order to get the job that I already had. And it was amazing. Um, I was working with some great actors. We were rehearsing in a little church hall in Pimlico. And then we opened at Birmingham Rep and we went on tour. And it just went so well from day one. Mm -hmm. I mean, we worked really hard workshopping the script and, and defining the characters. And... It made people laugh. It resonated. And there was something in it for everyone. And I think that that just really drew people in. We toured Manchester, Sheffield. We went to the closest theatre in Salford um, to where the play was set. And it was up at Pendleton College. And I had these big yellow flares on and these wild costumes. But there were people using the college as well at the same time as we were rehearsing. And the dressing rooms were, were some rooms right at the back. And I seem to remember there was some sort of sports hall, maybe even a swimming pool there. And there were some other kids. And I'd have to cross through these areas from my dressing room to get to the stage. And all these solver kids, yeah, what do you think you're wearing? That's my uh, old stamping ground there. I know exactly it, it, what you mean. But anyway, even though we toured, we had a great tour and we went to the West End 
We played at the Ambassador's Studio Theatre, which is right next door to the Mousetrap. And then the play was extended and Stratford East Theatre wanted to bring us in. And then the Royal Court wanted to bring us back and put us on the main stage rather than in the Studio Theatre because the demand for tickets was so high. So we ended up going to the Duke of York's Theatre on St. Martin's Lane. And that was just wow. Like, finally, this is what all actors want to do. You want to be in the West End, your pictures outside the theatre, there's all the lights going round. And I used to go up to the, to the bar of that theatre because you could get through the window and you could sit on top of what is the canopy outside where it said East is East and all the lights around it. And I just used to sit on there before every show and just watch the people walking past in London, oh, yeah. looking up at the sign, looking at all the photographs, having conversations about, oh, we might go and see that, and we might go. And I just loved observing what it was like and what it meant to be in London. And every night there was an invitation for us to go to another restaurant or to some sort of party. As soon as that show came down, everything else did too. It just ends And I've never known something that just has a definite end like that. It was a year and that was quite hard to take. And I was by this point living in London and was skint and needed a job and ended up working at Moss Bros in Covent Garden, (laughs) Um, fitting people with suits, dinner suits, white tie and black tie. And you used to have to walk past the theatre to get to Moss Bros in Covent Garden. <laughs> so I often used to, or on my lunch break, I'd go to get a sandwich somewhere and I'd see the theatre there and I'd be thinking, I wish I was back in there. And the work just, it was strange. It just dried up and it wasn't there. And at that point, I thought, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm not going to sit around in London being really skint in a, an environment that I'm not that keen on. I think you can only really enjoy London if you've got money and if you're in in the mix and in the happening areas. And I couldn't afford to do that. So I came back to Manchester and started working in TV production again for Granada Satellite. I'd previously had summer jobs working in the newsroom, making all the soft, fluffy bits of at the end of the news programme that you'd see. And then my Saturday job was I was a runner on Granada Goals Extra, which was the goals straight after the games had finished on Saturday. But of course, we still broadcasted on TV, but we nothing was digital, really. It was all on tape. So the tapes would be recorded somewhere down in Telecine or in the depths of the building where all the satellite feeds came. The edit suites were in the newsroom and my job was to watch one of the games. I used to log it to say, so I knew exactly where all the action points were, how what minute, what second. And then... As soon as the the final whistle blew, I'd get up from the newsroom, leg it down the corridor, ITV, because it was all built in straight lines, of course, and then down to the depths of the building, banging on at the at the at the control centre. The lads would open the door, they'd give me the tapes, I'd leg it straight back up all the way through to the opposite side of the building, basically, out of breath, handing it to the editor. I did enjoy that, but that was my Saturday job. Um, so I'd, I'd always been in and around TV production. So it was quite natural for me to come back and Granada Satellite was 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 starting up and we were making loads of programmes with very little money. Just as, be as creative as you can because you haven't got any cash. How are you going to make these programmes interesting? Um, 
but like in TV terms, I would think I was ended up, I was producing three programs at the same time and had them all in and out of studios. I don't know how we did it, to be honest with you, because mm. you wouldn't think that you could possibly stay on top of that much content and that many programs at the same time. But we just, we loved what we did and we worked around the clock and we made it work. We were based in the city. We got to know a lot of people because we were always pulling favours because we had no money to make any programmes. We were like, can we have this? No, you can't. Okay. But it was a great grounding and a great, it was great to be back in, in the TV world. I love being behind the camera just as much as being in front of it, to be honest with you. I took that job and then a couple of years later, the film of East is East came. East is East had gained traction, obviously. There was talk of the film when we were doing the stage play, almost from day one saying how great this piece would be as a film. It was really sad because we then got the message that they were going to recast it completely and that none of the original cast would be seen. That was hard to take because all the original cast, we'd invested so much in that piece and making it work and getting it to a point that it was really funny and engaging and that somebody wanted to make a film of it and then suddenly we weren't involved. But if I just cut to the chase, which was basically they couldn't cast it and they couldn't make their minds up and they decided to bring back the original cast for auditions. They gave us the auditions and three of us got the parts that we'd originally played in the stage play, which was amazing. And then that was the start of another journey. So I asked for a sabbatical from my producing job and went off and shot the film. Um, and then just came back to work at Granada Satellite. Uh, and that was, my plan was just go off, shoot the film, come back to work because I really enjoyed what I was doing. And then just as I got back from shooting the film, Coronation Street came on. We're setting up a new family, the first Asian family. Um, would you like to come for the audition? And actually they started before I'd finished East Disease. They'd started casting it. And I couldn't see them till after I'd finished making the film because there was just, there was no time, there was no space, there was no way I could do it. So when I got back, I went for the casting. But that was 1999, which was kind of a long time coming that yeah. you didn't have an Asian family on a street yeah. in Manchester for all those years that went before. To work on a soap is a skill in its own right for an actor. It's mm -hmm. very different mm -hmm. to anything else. The biggest difference is there is no end. So you always have to play as in life that you don't know what's what's coming next. Uh, and of course, they can be slightly repetitive in case people have missed the episode prior. So you end up repeating yourself, which you don't do in drama so much. <laughs> but it seems relentless, though. I mean, in terms of you filming and then having to kind of learn new lines. I mean, it's like a proper job, isn't it? It's, it's, more, than a, oh, it's yeah. more than a nine to five, clearly. Oh, it's definitely more than a nine to five. It never leaves you and you never leave it. You've, you've always got something going on in, in that world and you're always thinking about it. And the other thing is that it never goes away because once you step onto the cobbles, everybody knows who you are. So <laughs> when you walk through the city or when you're going about your everyday business, you know, people are starting to stop you in the supermarket and, and tell you about, something that's happened in Coronation Street. And I remember the, my first experience of that was my character, Vikram, was wanting to go on a date with Maxine, the hairdresser. And there were two consequences to this. One is that I wasn't allowed to get my hair cut before 
I'd shot the first scenes of Coronation Street. So all the photos of me have ridiculously long hair and they're all really embarrassing. Um, the second thing that happened was that I then have my hair cut. Then in order to go on the date, I have to close the corner shop early and Jim McDonald comes in to buy a pint of milk and I say, sorry, Jim, do one. The shop's shut, basically. For me, the scene was... It was pretty much a nothing scene. But it it was the first time that people started stopping me on the street going, you're a piece of work. Why wouldn't you sell Jim McDonald that pint of milk? The audience pick up on things that you sometimes <laughs> don't perceive as being really important because they see how annoying would that be that the fella, he's got the shop, he's, he's there, he's just walking out the door, he only wants a pint of milk. He's a so-and-so, that one. So many people mentioned it to me. I think that really crystallised how many people watch Coronation Street and how important yeah. to the UK, but to Manchester, it really was. And my mum also confirmed that point to me once. You know, the rule in Manchester is you don't phone someone whilst Corrie's on because they're either watching Corrie or when the adverts come on, you get up and go and make a brew and sit back <laughs> down brew. for the second half. You know, that's, the, that's what happens all over the city. And I'd phoned my mum during Coronation Street and she's like, what are you phoning me for? And I said, she said, Corrie's on. I said, I know I'm not in this episode tonight. She said, I don't just watch it when you're in it, you know, and hung up on me. Put you right in your place there. Yeah. <laughs> and with Emmerdale, you played Jay for like, is it 11 years now? Do you feel like you become him? Are you so much into character that you're thinking, what would he do next? How does that work? Well, characters evolve and mm. change over time been at Emmerdale for 11 years now and when I started off Jay was kind of the the happy cheerful smooth one and then he's just been worn down by the scriptwriters <laughs> over times he's had two failed marriages he's had a drug problem he's had kids that have gone missing and um yeah he can be a bit bitter and a bit more twisted um that's what happens when you move into to Emmerdale or Coronation Street things go wrong for you but if they, I suppose if things are going wrong for you that means that the writers are writing for you so in in my world that's a good thing that the characters always got problems and there's always something interesting in their life I do sometimes get annoyed or fed up because Jay has developed a trait of losing his temper all the time <laughs> so I always right Jay loses his rag Jay flares up and I find myself doing a lot of kind of shouty angry scenes I've calmed down a bit now I'm with Laurel but um there was a period where I was like I can't I can't possibly raise my voice anymore it's just all too much so it hasn't mirrored your own temperament as you've got older then that's just in the script is it well hopefully I've got less hot-headed as I've matured but unfortunately the character's gone the opposite way but I'm trying to bring him back round at the minute because nobody wants to watch someone that's always shouting and moaning and whinging, do they? It's a bit of escapism at seven o'clock. Absolutely, yeah. And so just tell us a bit about Shameless because that was another iconic series, wasn't it? I mean, it, it kind of bottled Manchester as it was, I think, at the time. And it was considered to be very risky near the knuckle. What was it like working on that set with that team of people? Risque and near the knuckle, yes. From the very beginning, even when I first heard about the show I got sent the scripts and Paul Abbott had said you fancy this I'm going to get the scripts over to you I said right okay yeah definitely picked them up gay shopkeeper Muslim married to a white woman having an affair 
with a lad. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Started reading it and was just absolutely captivated by it. It was just, it was, it was wild. And it was wildly funny at the same time. And it was distinctly Mancunian. The humour was everything about it. And obviously, we know that Paul Abbott extracts things from his own life and experiences and and puts them all together and, and puts them on screen. And the way that he sees things and the way that he perceives things is really just lends itself. His eye lends itself to, to stuff being on TV. That's the bit that you want to see. That's the funny moment. And he just captures it every time. I remember him saying to me, I made a bit of a tweak to one of the storylines, but it's nothing for you to worry about. I've just changed the age of one of the characters. Next day in the Sun newspaper, Chris Bisson, paedophile. But you could have told me it was that character that you were changing the age of. I think he'd made the character from 17 to 15 or something. (laughs) And obviously then the Sun had decided to splash big on it and put my name, paedophile. So that was a bit of a wild on-the-edge show from day one to be honest with you but everyone loved working on it this is the we built the city podcast celebrating the mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city so you've said also that it's your job to make people believe things that aren't true and one of the things that people think is true is that you have an asian heritage in fact your family your dad's from trinidad you were on a programme, weren't you, called Empire's Children, where you went back and kind of looked at your lineage. That sounds really interesting. What did you learn from that about your family and about you? Well, I learned a lot about me, to be honest with you, because I don't think it's often that you actually stop and think about who you are. And my mum's white. She's from Withenshaw. I knew my grandparents. We kind of knew that they were a very English family. There were some people that come from this part of England and that part. But on the dad's side of the family... That heritage had been lost. And I was confused as a child because I spent a lot of time growing up in Moss Side. You know, my family were really embedded in this community and my granddad had set up the Moss Side cricket team in the late 60s when he'd arrived. And my family have always been involved in the organisation of the Moss Side Carnival. And so I spent a lot of time in the park for the carnival and playing cricket. Um, but it was confusing in a way because... We looked different to the Afro-Caribbean community, although culturally we were the same. And then I got approached by the people that make Who Do You Think You Are? And they were doing a series called Empire's Children. And it was for Channel 4. And it was specifically to, to do a Who Do You Think You Are on these people. But that tied in with the, uh, the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery. So this was back in... 2006, 2007. And I was asked if I'd go back to Trinidad. And I immediately wanted to do it. And through that journey, I learned a lot about what my family had endured, what my mum and dad had endured when they were in Manchester and when they were having me as a child. Because obviously it brings up Lots of conversations you were asking about how people reacted and what was it like for your mum and dad to be together in the 70s. And then going back to Trinidad to try and understand where my dad had come from. And then ultimately where my grandparents and great-grandparents had come from. It was an interesting project. Some of my family were really up for it. And some were, should we just say, slightly less keen. They they didn't want to, to they didn't want to know. They didn't want to rummage around because 
maybe it was because they were unsure about what they would find. You know, there could be some upsetting stuff there. And, you know, certainly some of the other people that part as the subjects in that series of documentaries had some really harrowing stories. Um, Mine was Trinidad. And I went to Trinidad and started to meet people. It was very, very well structured, very well organized, obviously. Um, So I was talking to genealogists um, and professors about what had happened. And we traced my great grandfather. We found him, basically. And we never knew where the surname Bisson came from. But then we found that my great grandfather was called Bishniar. And he came from Rajasthan in India uh, as an indentured laborer. And he was brought over to Trinidad to work on the sugar plantations. It's a very interesting connection to Manchester because my grandfather was displaced by a wrong that was being righted. And that was the abolition of slavery. And that's what the documentaries were looking at, the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery. And you think, well, how does an Indian family that's ended up in Manchester connect to the abolition of slavery? Of course, when slaves were abolished and set free, the empire didn't want to pay the going rate to re-employ all of these people to work on the sugar plantations or the cotton farms or wherever it was that they were. So they came up with this very clever idea, which was called indentured labour. And indentured labour was slavery on a contract. And so my great-grandfather had been displaced. There'd been no work in Rajasthan because the cotton processing had been taken away from Rajasthan and moved to the cotton mills of Manchester, which was what built this industrial past, you know, part of our heritage, those big buildings that we all see when we go around the city. But the fact that those factories had opened in Manchester meant that all the raw materials were being sent from India and they weren't doing the finishing of the cotton in Rajasthan, in Jaipur specifically. So my great-grandfather was without work and then got the offer to become an indentured labourer. The British were fantastic at keeping records and logbooks and where this person had been and where they'd come from and what physical marks they had that they could identify them by. So he'd come from Jaipur, he'd then gone to Bombay and he was put on a boat and he was sent to Trinidad to work on a sugarcane plantation for 25 years on a contract which said that if he wanted to go home at the end of it, the British powers would provide boats or a trip for him to go back home. They were treated like slaves. They were kept in the same conditions as the slaves were, and they were made to work. And that's where he worked, on the sugar plantations. Two main things came out of this was, obviously, he'd been displaced by the Manchester cotton trade, so he'd ended up going to work in Trinidad. Secondly, when it came to giving the Indians the return passage... The Brits weren't so keen on sending boats from Trinidad or from the West Indies to take people back over to India because there was no value in it. So what they decided to do was to give them a piece of land in exchange for the return right of passage. The empire had decided that they didn't want to be shipping all these Indians or Chinese people. There was there was indentured labourers from all over all over the place. And They didn't want to send them back. So what they did was they said, "Okay, well, we won't give you your return passage, but we'll give you this piece of land instead. So why don't you just stay in Trinidad and you can have a piece of land? There was a consequence to this, though, because the black slaves that had been emancipated weren't given a piece of land 
and they also weren't given their jobs back because they were replaced by the Indians. And so when I got to Trinidad, one of the first things that struck me was racism between the blacks and the Indians. And it was something that I was completely unprepared for. And it was only because I was able to speak to a genealogist and to be in the company of professors who understood this stuff, was, was it really explained to me why this was the case? And then the second turning point was the independence that Trinidad gained in the late 60s. And a predominantly black government took over and wanted to right some of the historic wrongs, it was seen that the Indians had had an unfair advantage. And my granddad at that time owned a couple of betting shops. I'm not entirely 100% sure, but basically extra taxes were levied on him and it became difficult for Indians in business, so I'm told anecdotally over that period. And he didn't think that this was going to be a good place to live because of the change of conditions since the empire had handed Trinidad its independence. There was suddenly the big power had pulled out and everyone was left to fight it out between themselves. And he decided to bring the kids over to England. But having owned a betting shop, he was a gambler. He got to London, gambled all the money away, lost everything. And then they ended up with the Catholic rescue mission being shipped on the out of London programme, which was to push migrants away from the capital city and out into other parts of the UK. And so my dad then got moved to Manchester. If it wasn't for the cotton trade and it wasn't for the empire, my mum and my dad would never have met. So it's, it's interesting how Manchester affects a man in Rajasthan and then he went to Trinidad and then the former colony decides to give it its independence and then the family decides to leave and come to the UK and then get shipped to Manchester. There's kind of a nice circularity towards that. It's interesting as well, though, because I mean we live in a time where we're living through a campaign where Black Lives Matter and that is really important. And we're having conversations about what should and shouldn't be taught in history lessons. Who are the important characters? Who are the key people? I'd never heard of indentured labour before I embarked on this documentary. But there were hundreds of thousands of people that were shipped all across the planet and left in all sorts of different places, in Kenya, in all the West Indian islands. You know, and this is a big part of of our history as as UK's history, a, bit, a very big a very big part of mine specifically. But when we look at what we should be learning at school, you know, it, it, it I suppose to me it almost feels like the UK said, "All right, well, we'll cop for slavery. Oh, well, don't mention the indentured labour stuff. You know, we'll just kind of brush that under the carpet." But you know, there is so much more to the to the history, um, and I suppose when you see people pulling down statues in Bristol. It's hard to watch statues mm. being pulled down and defaced. But I suppose when you've grown up where I have and you've learned the things that I've learned and you've been trying to have a dialogue with somebody for over a decade about changing the plaque on this on this statue, you can see why people get angry. It was it the Burnley fans flew the White Lives Matter sign over Man City's ground. And, you know, to me, all lives matter. Because my mum's white and my dad's Indian, mm -hmm. Trinidadian descent, West Indian culturally, but ethnically Indian. And I I find that really difficult when I see banners like that, because, you know, this is, it's about levelling up. It's not about pulling people mm -hmm. down. It's not mm -hmm. that white lives don't matter. It's that all lives 
matter. And that has not been the case. And also the story then with the link to Manchester. I don't, you know, we know a lot about cotton, don't we? But we don't know about the back story there. I think most Mancunians or, you know, a lot of Mancunians will have had families that worked in those in those cotton mills and in those really terrible conditions. But they will not have at that moment in time ever realised or comprehended the impact that they were having on the other side of the world. Globalisation has changed a lot of things. Now we are aware of it. That's why we have fair trade coffees, cottons that we know where they were ethically sourced, you know, our foods and what have you. We're a lot more connected. But in those days, I think there was just a, a sense that they could just get away with it. Yeah, totally. And I think now organisations and people are very much more aware the need to be transparent around values and ethics. And I think, you know, we've seen so much of that change so quickly, even over the past four months, really. Well, I know that you're, you know, you you have a, a list of all the things that you expect from people that that you work with and they really resonate with me. I love the one, no dickheads. That is so important because that's true in any industry. And I think in my business, people have got away with it for a lot longer because mm. on-screen talent was really important, but certainly not on the soaps because they're people that you're working with day in, day out for very, very long periods of time. So people get weeded out of those, people that don't behave properly. Um mm. I always like the no integrity slippage as well, because I'm somebody who will always do as I say, and I will always do it to the best of my ability. And it drives me mad when people pull out at the last minute or they don't do what they say or they kind of half arse it. That drives me up the wall. So maybe it's quite hard to get me to say yes to do something in the first place. But once I have said yes, then that's my firm commitment that I will do whatever it is that I have agreed to do for you, whether it's turning up on your podcast today. You ask people to do, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Happens in our industry all the time. Will you come to this event? Will you come to that event? And then when it comes to it, they've they've forgotten about it and they just can't be bothered. Stop saying yes. I'd rather you said no and I knew where I stood than you say yes and then let me down at the last minute. It's so annoying. I love the idea, plant trees that you'll never see because I, well, I do that anyway. Because um, through lockdown, we've planted, uh, I planted half an orchard, I planted six apple trees. I mean, I I will see the fruit bear from those, but there are, there are lots of plants that I'm putting in my garden that I'll, that I'll, that will be there for others to enjoy, not me. And I think it's a metaphorical planting, isn't it as well? It's, I mean, you do a lot of work with Anne's Hospice and Northwest Air Ambulance. Do you think it's important to use your platform as an actor or as a, as a personality to kind of put stuff back in? I do work with and have worked with lots of charities. And I suppose this is the integrity bit is I only do what I will say that I can do. And I'll only work with them if I think that if what I can do for them will actually help. I'm not interested in being on a piece of paper as a list of patrons. You know, there's no point being involved with an organization if you're not going to enrich that organization or bring something to it. And it's all about setting up things for the future, isn't it? And trying to trying to maintain some of these really important services. My partner Rowena used to work for the Northwest Hour Ambulance. That's an organisation that's charity funded, but at the moment that you need it is the first time that you realise you needed it. But when you need it, you really, really need it. You know, I've seen I drive over the Pennines uh, regularly, obviously because I work in Leeds. 
And I see that yellow helicopter landing on the side of the motorway sometimes and I'm thinking, oh, my days. You know, you get a bit frustrated because you're in a traffic jam and you might be late for work. And then suddenly you see the yellow helicopter descend and you think, you know, stop, get a grip of yourself. You know, somebody has had an accident here. And at the end of the day, if I'm late for the work, it's only telly. (laughs) We can just film it later. All right, some people might be upset because people in telly like to think about how important they are and oh da, da, da. but ultimately it is only telly and we can just film it later um and certainly you know i've had a, I've had a great engagement with St. Anne's hospice obviously Eamon's chief executive and um i suppose that's drawn me into that organization but if you have lived in manchester the chances are that you know someone that's that's been in st Anne's. um i certainly do um i've been affected by it and they are a fantastic, fantastic organisation and a great group of people that are trying really hard, you know, and I, I run the Manchester 10K for them. Um, and I do other bits and bobs for them here and there. I don't have a formal kind of relationship in that sense. But, um, uh, yeah, I like to help out where I can and where it's appropriate. That's a, and it's an amazing institution. I agree with you. Who in your life has been there for you? I think when you when you look at your career, none of this would be possible without the support of your family. And obviously, you know, that's your mum and your dad. And in my life, I've had uh, fortunate to have another dad as well, which is Eamon, my stepdad. And, you know, they've all been incredibly supportive, but never pushy, just helped me in whichever direction I was wanting to travel in. And, you know, I've really learned from that. And that's the way that I will be with with my children now um, and obviously you know I've got two young kids the seven and four and they're a real handful and I couldn't do what I do without the support of my partner Rowena obviously yeah I say the kids are a handful because we've just been through lockdown haven't we and it's been incredibly challenging trying to get a four-year-old and a seven-year-old to sit down and do the work that they get sent from school but at the same time it's been the most rewarding time spending all of this time with my children. And now I know exactly where my son's up to and what he's capable of, which times tables he knows, when he's pulling my leg, when he's having me at it, you know, what what his vocabulary is like, you know, how what adverbs is he capable of using? How can he describe things? And, you know, that is really wonderful. And over these few months, I've seen him change and I've seen him grow and obviously we've all come closer together as a family because we spent so much time together and walking around Manchester, rediscovering bits of Manchester that I didn't even know existed. Things right on my doorstep, public footpaths that are just amazing, following the River Bolin and finding little beaches and things like that. Um, <laughs> not telling where the beach is on the River Bolin, by the way. No, I don't all the manks will be there. Every man, yeah, have you seen the beach, mate? <laughs> no, I'm not telling you. You just have to follow the footpaths and you will find it. Um, but yeah, it's been an amazing time. And, um, you know, I feel very, very lucky to have the support of um, of all my family. Yeah, lovely. So, OK, quick fire Manchester round. Um, best view of Manchester, or is it the beach? <laughs> There's a couple of views, really. One is when I come back over the Pennines and you see Manchester open up and that just feels like home. I have that warm feeling every time I I come down the hill on the other side of Saddleworth and you can just see the city. And that feels like I've I've kind of I've crossed the threshold and I'm back home, which is great. And then um another distant view is out near where I am, 
just past the airport, out into the green bit near Cheshire, is on a clear day you can see that city. You can see the Beetham Tower sticking up, and, and, and it's just fabulous. I mean, there's lots of views inside the city that I love. Uh, I love St. Anne's Square. I, I, I could just sit in St. Anne's Square for hours and just watch people go by. I spent my youth exploring the city, so there's lots of corners and parts of it that I'm totally in love with and will always go back and walk past whenever I get the opportunity. Yeah, I've been able to do that quite a bit in lockdown as well. Just getting it. I walked from Salem to Manchester a couple of times, just needed to go and have a look at it. Uh, City or United? I'm United. What do you order at the Chippy? <laughs> um, well, obviously fish and chips, but steak and kidney pudding and chips and gravy is one of my yeah. favourites as well. So good. I've not. I've, I keep saying every time people say that now, I just can't wait to go and actually do that. I've not had it for years, so that's next order. So what's the best show to come out of Manchester after Coronation Street? Ooh, that's hard. And I'm going to upset a lot of people here because <laughs> all of my peers have worked on lots of different shows. I'd say there were two shows that have defined Manchester. Um, one is an old one, Prime Suspect, that I worked on that I just thought was phenomenal. The way it was shot, the moment in time was brilliant. And I can never forget Shameless. Shameless broke the mould. <laughs> certainly did and lastly what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here when I'm not in Manchester I think I miss the people the most the people of the city really you know you you identify with the buildings and the space but when you're back in your own city you just feel comfortable when you walk down the street you feel like you're the boss you're in charge you know, there are no surprises, you know, for all our, for warts and all, you know, you at least you know what you're going to face when you're walking down the street. When you were away from home, you're never quite sure. That's so true. So thanks so much for spending time with me today and we built the city and for when you said you'd do it, then you actually did it. So no integrity slippage there. Thanks very much. And I feel Excellent. like we just need your mum on next. We've had the whole family on then, haven't we? If you get Sharafina on in the next few weeks. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. My mum doesn't really like being on screen or on the radio or anything like that. She took a lot of convincing to come over to when I did I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. She refused point blank to be on Family Fortunes. And the documentary I did about my life history, I mean, you know, it only took a few weeks to film it, but I think it took about six weeks to get my mum to agree to be interviewed on it, which I was really passionate about because there was no story unless you see the balance. You can't understand the person unless you understand the parents. Um, and especially, you know, um, you know, mixed race. And that was really important for, for people to see that side of my life as, as well as the bit that we were focusing on in the documentary. Well, my godfather, I've got one godfather is Roland Ransfield, who were named the business after. And the other godfather is actually called Stan Ogden. And he was our next door neighbour. And he used to say, stars don't make a noise, they just shine. So it sounds like your mum's one of them. <laughs> yeah, she definitely is. She's the, the backbone of the family. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and good luck. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Chris. Chris built this city by going into situations prepared always, by doing what he'll say he'll do and by handling the fallout of not selling Jim McDonald a pint of milk. We Built This City is out every Thursday. On the next episode, you'll hear from another Mancunian who helped to put the heart into modern Manchester. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review where you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
This is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you want your company to be part of that, give us a call on the number we've always had. 0161 236 1122.